various things in the books really kind of suggest to How us dare you that- call a horse a nerd, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I think they look good in glasses. <laughs> And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Eat Club, a special bonus episode of Pratt Chat, a Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Once a year, we record a bonus episode with topics chosen by our Eek tier subscribers. This year, the topics are kind of a blend of like the flat world and the round world put together. So it was kind of like somewhere between like 2D and 3D, so like two and a half D. <laughs> Two and a half disc worlds. Uh, and if you'd like to choose a topic for next year, you can become a subscriber too. We'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. But Liz, I'm very excited. We we put this together as one of our rewards for subscribers way back when we started up subscriptions, I think at the start of 2019. And oh, Who can even remember that long ago? I know. Four times. But this is the first time where we kind of had a critical mass of people at that tier and indeed, just to put all our cards on the table, the week before we we're recording this, two of our subscribers decided to up their subscriptions to that tier. So we now have two extra questions Which slash topics. Yeah, I was not expecting that. That was very lovely. Thank you. And thank you to all of our subscribers, particularly the Eek tier. We'll thank each one of you individually during this course of this episode. But thank you to everyone who subscribes to the podcast. And I say subscribe because even if you're listening and you listen regularly, uh, you don't have to be a subscriber. If you're listening to this, you you might not be, and that's fine. This is a bonus episode that you can enjoy as well. Uh, but if you want to have input into this episode or get onto our Discord or any of those other things, we'll talk about how to become a subscriber at the end. But uh, yeah, I'm. this is going to be fun. feels kind of like a reward for us, actually, to get such great <laughs> questions. It, well, it also it occurred to me it's about a year since we did our 30th episode that's a year ago now, a little bit over a year, and we just asked people to ask us any old question, which was great. This this feels like that, like it's a chance for us to just chat without the mm. pressure of not messing up a discussion of a beloved book. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of potential for that still. I guess. In the questions. I shouldn't jinx us, should I? No. But yeah, the, co- the questions are great. And they have all been phrased as questions. That wasn't a requirement, but it's how they've come in. Well, most Appreciate of them. all of you for that. Please come to all of the writers' festivals. It is a rare skill. <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, yeah. There, and there, there's a good variety of different things as well. So I think, I think this is going to be fun. Shall we get into it, Liz? Yeah. That sounds, that sounds good to me. Each bit should have a nice heading and we can just name each part of the podcast after the person who sent in the question, mm. I think, because then, then their name's nice and prominent. So I'll give it a go. And you have that good voice acting skills, so I feel like you, you can give it the gravitas that is necessary. Well, I mean, also, you can give me some feed, you know, c- critique it, some feedback. All right, I'll use my criticism and you use your acting skills. And then we'll just, um, <laughs> Together, right. we'll form Voltron. No. Um, all right. Uh, Together, we'll just bring out neuroses. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the job. All right, uh, yeah. here we go. Part one, Carl. I feel like you were just channeling, like, James Spader Ultron then? Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Mm, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I think it's a compliment, but. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You asked for critique. So I, d- I did. I didn't know it was going to be so immediate. <laughs> but thank you, Carl. Thank you very much. 
you're the first person to send in your topic and your topic was just a short, I mean, we went back and forth with you a bit, Carl, about what you wanted to talk about. And eventually you decided you would like us to answer the question, how would Ankh-Morpork handle COVID-19? And I, I think we're ready to discuss this question. When we did have our open session a year ago on episode 30, we answered a few, but they were much more specific because we'd just mm. gone into first lockdown in Melbourne. And so our questions were really about that isolation and quarantine. And I think now, you know, we could look back on having been through it and think more about how it would go down in a more holistic way. Mm. Because also, you know, we've seen not just how it's been handled here, but also how it's going so far in the rest of the world. It's not over. I think it's important for us to acknowledge we are still in the clutches of a global pandemic. But let's not get too heavy. Let's let's think about this as a fun thing. Let's start at the top. I reckon veterinary would have a handle on it pretty much from the get-go. I think he would see how serious it was and see all the possible fallout from the very beginning, like as soon mm. as it became an inkling of an issue. I feel like he would probably set up a whole bunch of committees for people who feel like they need to say something to feel like they're involved but not actually have any harmful <laughs> impact because he's a big fan of committees right that's like his thing so yeah. he'd just um set up all the guild leaders to be like okay you deal with like these things while he's actually like dealing with it quietly in the background yeah so yeah i think that's definitely how it would start Igor's would be running the vaccine program. Now here, yes, this is where Hank Morpork has a distinct advantage. Uh, not that they have as many Igor's as, say, Uberwald, where I think they would probably do very well in a pandemic. Yes, but Veterinary has good connections with Uberwald, and so I feel like he would quietly work together in the background to harness all of the, the Igor power for also Hank mm. Morpork's benefit. Here's a stupid question. Um but I think it has a bearing on the on the answer to this topic. There are no stupid questions. There are only stupid hats. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not wearing a hat, so I, I got away with that one. But do you think if there was a pandemic on the disc world, could there be one that would affect everybody? Or would it be like just a human disease that humans would spread from one human to another? Or would dwarfs... I mean, I, I think it'd be pretty hard for trolls to get the same disease as humans. But what about dwarfs and, and the undead? Like, I think, again... Uberwald would do very well next door because, you know, there are so many vampires and werewolves who are either immune to or very resistant to disease. And then you've got dwarves who may or may not be susceptible to it, but also very good at staying underground and keeping away from everyone. So I think they'd do okay. Depends on whether it's literally COVID-19 or if it's Mm. just a pandemic. Have we had any, like, big disease or, or discussion of disease in the Discord? Like, I'm trying to think of... No, not really. I mean, there's there's the really harsh winter that happens in the truth. And you'd think, you know, people would be sicker then, but it doesn't really happen. And there's not... Yeah, I don't think there's really a big thing about a plague or, or any kind of virulent disease in any of the books that I can remember. Well, I guess for the purpose of this question, to give it as thorough an answer as possible, let's assume it's a COVID-19-like virus that affects the whole population, dwarves, trolls, everyone okay. the same. Like Everyone's equally susceptible to make it a more comparable exercise. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, in our hypothetical yeah. situation. All right. Okay. Everyone can get it. Yeah, yeah. Though um, werewolves, maybe the wolf part can't get it, so they have to make a decision about whether they want to like be wolves for oh, that no. time. Yeah. They might get that could be an interesting thing that like the werewolf community would have to consider. They get too wolfy. 
Yeah, because if you stay like it for too long, but like if you can't possibly get the illness while you're in your wolf form, then that would be something like that they would have to think about. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Zombies could be vectors but not infected. Vampires maybe too. Oh, yeah, because they would also possibly be able to tr- transmit it because if you're like biting all willy-nilly, oh, yeah. you could, yeah, so they'd have to probably crack down on that yeah i mean some way any vampires who weren't but well i mean not that vampires who aren't black ribboners are welcome in more pork anyway mm. well i say that dragon king of arms was quite welcome in more pork and i there's no <laughs> way he was a black ribboner so yeah maybe they could only bite the vaccinated i don't know like you'd have to come up with some sort of system to like help do you think i mean how what about medical technology this is a question like we've just sort of assumed that Igors would know about vaccination, but are they more at a sort of pre-vaccination kind of variolation stage? Yeah, they're barber surgeons. Yeah, so they they can't make a proper vaccine, but they probably could do some variolation, which is what people used to do before vaccination. You know, they give you like the scabs of somebody from smallpox and crumble them up and make you eat them or prick you with a pin more likely. And you would actually get smallpox, but hopefully you'd only have a mild case and you'd be all right. But modern vaccines... Don't do that. They simulate the disease in a variety of ways, either by using dead cultures of the actual organism or various other means to simulate the proteins of the virus or bacteria that your body reacts to as if it's the real thing. So it's a, it's a bit different, but it's, yeah, I, I'm probably getting too in the weeds now with this. Well, I mean, I guess the difference is like, say you live in a medieval castle and you're, you've never been attacked. So variolation, like the old way would have been like, oh, the, the laird organizes for a small village nearby to just attack you and try and take over and you hope that your castle wins. Mm. Whereas vaccination would be like they pay a bunch of actors to sort of simulate a thing but not do any real damage. The idea is that your castle has, like all the people involved are trained and now recognize what an attack is so that if it happens again for real later, they know where the bows and arrows are. They know how to, like, they can react faster and they can stamp it down faster and your castle will not get damaged at all. That's kind of yeah the thing. That's a great analogy. I love that. And I think Ankh-Morpork is kind of like a castle. <laughs> uh, mm. You know, it's a walled city. It's an independent city-state. So, I mean, it's got some advantages in that sense. They probably do the borders, I guess, since they are literally a walled city and that is part of what it's for. Like, it's just, mm. yeah. And just keep people out. Um they have a bit of a problem. They do grow some food there as evidenced by our mate who keeps growing and using vegetables to send to the truth. But mostly it comes from the Stowe Plains. So they're going to have to have people coming in and out. How many people are there in the Stowe Plains? Like, is it huge? or is uh, it a... Like it's agrarian, Do they have a right? trans-Tasman bubble kind of... <laughs> kind of deal well they them? they could i mean it's 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 basically next door like it's where you go if you go out the gate of ankh pork heading in the right direction and i think that's oh now i'm trying to remember the map i haven't looked at the map for a while but i think the stow yeah, plains are kind of uh hubwise and widdishins of the city but i could be wrong about that but i reckon they're doing cute clear them in the bubble because it wouldn't be mutually beneficial for all of them mm, that makes sense because i think even though you know the big cities there like stow latin stow uh independent i think they kind like i think they probably feel a bit like they're under the protection of ankh pork like they don't have big armies or anything so like coming back to the the vaccine thing i think yeah with igor basically being barbara surgeons maybe it's like cheery and people like cheery's time to shine because mm. that's kind of little things science and like that i don't know 
I think the watch Igor. Alchemist Igor? Like young Igor, who's already doing weird things with genetics and stuff. He'd be perfect for this. Like he'd be thinking, I mean, all Igors think a bit outside the box, so to speak, but he's sort of like welding things onto the outside of the box, (laughs) changing Mm. the shape of the box. So I think he'd be well on the way maybe to finding a vaccine. Let's move over to Unseen University. I reckon this might be controversial. I reckon Rid Cully might be a, it's not that bad, just need some fresh air and a walk kind of guy oh, for no. a while until he sees it's actually quite bad. But I reckon he might take some time to convince. Yeah, because, I mean, the other thing is that wizards are all old men, you know, like mm. they're all, they're, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to say this glibly, but they are in the same situation as the population in an aged care home. You know, mm. they, they mingle fairly freely. If one of them gets it, all of them are going to get it because they're not going to not go to the big table to eat dinner together. They won't change their habits. They will not no, definitely have it not. shifted. So yeah. I guess it's a matter of does someone come in and be like, you have to do this thing, or do they form like a isolated bubble? Or are they all just going to jump into Forex through the through that office <laughs> and like just be go, a real problem just or just have a holiday? Well, I mean, you know, then they have all the benefits that we have in Australia of being remote and distant from everybody else and having a sea border between us and every well, other country. Are they going to spread it everywhere? Because they can, you know. Oh, well, that's possible. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I reckon Rincewind would run away, though, as soon as he found oh, out yeah. there was like this disease that was killing people. He'd run away. But also he's very lucky, so I feel like he would get it and would have fairly mild symptoms and be all right. Even though mm. I think by kind of where we're up to and by the end of the Discworld books, he's probably, he's quite old. Like he must be like pushing 60, mm. I reckon. It's a bit hard to tell because I don't know that we ever get given his age, but I, I think given the amount of time that passes for him, yeah, he's got to be, he's got to be pushing 60s, which is not, I should clarify, very old in our world, but it's quite old for the disc world. And it's, it's quite, quite young for a wizard, though. It's quite young for a wizard. And it is, um, but it, it's, you know, it's old enough for a COVID-19 style disease to be a bit of a problem. So yeah, I, this is interesting. The wizards, I think, would be a problem until Rid Cully realized that it was serious. And then he'd be like, right, confined to barracks, men, you know? Mm. He'd, he'd sw- Once he flicks his switch, I think he'll be real militant about it, but I think it would take something for him to flick that switch. Mm. Yeah. And all the people who are like, yeah, you're, you're right, they're not going to not have their big meal at the big table all the time. Like, they won't change their routine, I think. So maybe, I don't know. Like... What about the general population of Ankh Morpurkers? Because I feel like living through the lockdowns and, and everything in Melbourne has been an experience in realising that Melbournians are perhaps community-minded, but also perhaps just very willing to do what authorities tell them on the whole. Like, there was a vocal minority who were jerks about it, and we have seen, you know, to speak to my own experience, we've certainly seen a lot of people not taking it as seriously since things have quietened down, people not wearing masks on public transport, which is still a directive that we have here. But by and large, people looked at what we were asked to do, which was very onerous. We had some of the harshest lockdown conditions in the world here. And most people just went, okay, but I don't know that that's what Ankh-Morpork would be like. <laughs> I mean, it depends because it's very divided into its different areas. There's like the shades, there's all that, everyone has different attitudes. I feel like most people would would go with what is handed down because i feel like veterinary would deliver it in a way that is palatable and beneficial like he would probably come up with a way to make it worth their while to comply Mm. i think so like yeah i don't know would he start up a new guild or would he be like if you don't comply 
then you then all your guild memberships are cancelled and it's open season for like yeah. everyone like depends on if you went the punitive route or not because that's all very controversial but i think people would comply because i think veterinary would have a handle on making it worthwhile hmm. to comply well what because it also occurs to me i mean one of the interesting things about it more because you've got this city that was once two cities and it's divided by the river ank and it's fairly clearly outlined that one side is the top side where all the which is a bit more you know oh they would they've got not, more money they'd They'd be doing the like trips to Aspen and all of that. They'd just be trying yeah. to, but then I reckon again. I'm sorry to have so much faith in veterinary. I reckon he'd go hard on them. He'd be like, "Oh, you," he'd do something. Yeah. How would he? I mean, personally, what would he do? He'd have to take some precautions because, like, he's quite old as well. By the end of it, you know, he's walking with a cane. His hair's turned white. He has dignified black mask and That's social true. distance from. <laughs> From his staff. I mean, I think um, the assassins would be all over it, right? They they probably wear masks all the time. So they'd be like, no yeah. problem. I'm just sorry. Okay, just to have a bit of a diversion, Dibbler would immediately go into masks that are, are non-compliant with the standards. Like, he'd just, like, go into, like, he's, like, one layer, um, maybe with the, the wrong filter in it. Like, he'd be immediately selling them. And also, I just can... Can ima- you know how restaurants pivoted to delivery? Just mm. like see what Dibbler's um, sausage in a bun home delivery service. Oh God, no! Oh, uh, Dibbler eats. But it'd be like <laughs> it'd be that thing where like a sausage on, in a bun is left on your doorstep, and you have to pay for it. Like kind of like yeah. Oh no! Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. I wonder if they'd come up with some sort of non-physical form of currency. Because I mean, in making money, which we haven't done on the podcast yet, but it's such a big deal for them to change over to paper money when they've, you know, been using gold coins all this time. Uh, from memory, you know, it's been a while since I've read it, but I, I seem to remember that's part of the big deal. But, yeah, I, going paperless, finding some sort of form of payment where you didn't have to hand over money so you weren't, like, passing germs around, that is a big challenge, Fang, more pork. Who's in charge of quarantine? Is it Moist One Lip? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is his new job. He has mm. been given that job to build quarantine facilities uh, I don't think you could run it out of hotels. <laughs> like, more porky. Yeah, but the golems could be running it because they probably they can't get it. I think this was. I, I didn't get a chance to re-listen to all of our old questions, but I think this was an idea you came up with back in episode thirty, which I agree with. You know, you get all the golems doing the, this stuff; they'd be they'd be super efficient. We know that they're community minded; they form their own fire brigade, fire? and so yeah, I think I think they'd do a great job of that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon, I reckon most of them could do a good job of quarantine. I feel like, what's the, yeah, like, if they if they put the walls up, if they kind of try and stay isolated, they don't let people in and out, they, they get people to do a lockdown. Get vaccines. Like, get vaccines as quickly as possible. Once they've weathered it, I, I don't, does it take as much of a toll on their economy? Like, is there stuff, I mean, it, I, I guess it takes more of a toll. It's not like people in Ankh-Morport can work from home using a mm. portable clax machine. <laughs> um like most of their jobs can't be done that way. So that'd be most of them have what we would talk about being essential jobs because, you know, it's a it's a more medieval on the cusp of industrialization society. Cause mm. it, even though we see them, you know, get things like trains and the clacks and all that stuff, they they're still essentially I don't know what the word is. I don't know enough about economic history. But they Yeah, they're not quite where we are yet, but they're not like we've seen them move through the Middle Ages basically to somewhere just sort of before this. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know. I think it would be really difficult to get people to stay inside because how are they going to get food? Like they don't have fridges. 
you'd have to be buying food frequently. It'd be real, real hard, really hard. Much more difficult to be in lockdown in Ankh-Morpork Pork and to deal with the effects of of trying not to transmit this disease than it, than it is for us. But yeah, there's the advantage of, I think, there would be communities in Ankh-Morpork, Pork, like zombies, who can't get sick from it and golems and stuff. So mm. I feel like there's the potential to mobilize them as possibly a new temporary guild where they're in charge of delivering meals and doing the bare essential, like pairing mm. back down to what you need to keep the city chugging along, if not thriving, as they deal with it, because they'd have a, a plan. A veterinary, I think, would have a big picture plan in place, which would be to mm. like lock down, vaccinate, get back to normal, which is like the ideal. So in the phase where things aren't running as usual, you'd need people to keep, you'd pair back things to the baseline to stop the city imploding, like you need coal or whatever, like to keep warm depending on what season it is etc etc yeah so i reckon if you mobilized a force of workers who are not susceptible because you do have those to draw upon so yeah like zombies um golems etc who are well remunerated for it not just like drawn into service Mm. etc because they can't get sick from it then they could do the few bare minimum things yeah as like maybe like a yeah pandemic guild or something like that. So they go around when everyone's locked down and deliver meals. I think some countries did do that as well mm. and do the so no one has to go out to the shops or whatnot. Um, yeah. Do you reckon? Here's here's my question about this because I don't I can't see Red Shoe like if you gave him a guild of zombie yeah. zombie essential workers, I can't see him stepping that back after it's over. So what I'm interested in now is that what are the long-term effects of Ankh-Morpork Pork having gone through a pandemic? Well, then you could change that to the emergency guild or whatever so that they're ready and sort of like in hibernation for if anything future happens, then Red mm. Shoe gets to keep his power and not have to essentially do any actual work. They're just ready. They're in the background ready to mobilize if something happens in the future. So then mm. he gets the title and then they've also they're also ready for if there's something else that happens. And, yeah, I think that's a way to deal with that. So, like, a more organised general emergency services sort of guild. Yeah. Because like at the moment... things get really bad. Yeah. They don't it, even have a fire brigade. Yeah, exactly. They've just got the watch and they can't really, you know, they're just trying to keep the peace. Do you, Who would be most likely to be your kind of, we don't want to be in lockdown, we don't want to wear masks protesters? Like, there's going to be, there's clearly going to be people like that in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. Do we know? Fancy people, but the toffs, all the ones that Vimes hate. Oh, yeah. Some of the wizards. Yeah, okay. But not, they're not motivated enough to leave the university to do it. They no. They sort of grizzle <laughs> and write letters to, to um, William DeWord's paper about it, but they're not going to get out there. I can kind of see the dean maybe getting into that, but then someone clips him around the ear and brings him around. Mm. Like probably Rid Cully, you know. Yeah. But people like, you know, how in, cause we did just do the truth, the one who like, really likes the tabloid and believes all the conspiracy stuff. Like oh, yeah. those sort of people who are like, oh yeah, it's not, it's a, it's an uber wall conspiracy that's just supposed to bring down out more pork, some trade stuff. And it's the vampires are just trying to get into control. Like there'd be a whole bunch of, yeah, just the, there's just a percentage of the population that is just like that everywhere. And I guess we know that germ theory does exist on the disc world because it's kind of comes up in a hat full of sky that, Tiffany has seen, like, a, a teacher has taught her this at one of the travelling teacher's fairs, and 
Miss Level, as a research witch, knows all about it and tries to educate the local people in her area. But those local mm-hmm. people in her area are like, that's ridiculous. We're not paying any attention to that. So I think that while there is that knowledge, it's definitely not widespread. So how would they communicate? I mean, I guess people understand that a plague is a plague, right? And if they tell mm-hmm. you, like, if you go near other people, you'll get it. I feel like yeah. the evidence of that being true is is going to be there. And also because it's such a densely populated city where bits of it are really not very clean and they don't necessarily all use soap, mm. it's going to spread quite quickly to start. Like it's going to be a disaster before they realize that it's happening and then they, they're going to bring it around. Mm. In round world, we understand that germs are a thing. And so when people tell us to wash our hands and cough into your elbow and wear a face mask, and it, those things make logical sense. But if you're in a world where most people don't know about or understand germ theory and what causes diseases is still a bit of a mystery to them, how do you communicate that and what effect does that have on? I think given where understanding is, like like you said, just keep it simple. Just be like, yeah, getting close to people is bad. Like they have it. And you could describe it in analogies, which some people would take literally, um, which is fine. Kind of like she didn't have full of sky, where it's mm. kind of like, oh, yeah, demons are attracted to this, which is kind of like the truth, but not really. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I think keep it simple. Maybe William DeWord would publish, like, a long-form piece explaining the actual, like, realistic part of it. Um, and people can choose to read that if they wish. But I think keeping it simple, illustrations, posters, just, like, like the ones that we saw everywhere that's like, are you copying the germs onto people where they showed like in colours, like where like what the impact of what wearing mm. one mask, two masks, like that kind of thing. Yeah. You don't have to get into the science and the germs of it all just to be like, this is how it spreads. So Yeah. If you're sick, it's in your breath, you know. Don't yeah. don't breathe yeah. on people. Yeah, keep it simple. That's good. I also wonder if the witches would be quietly doing something big picture, not just like, because I know they don't live here. But they have the potential to fix things on a wider scale because they do understand things. So I've been thinking about this though. It doesn't really come up in equal rights or masquerade, which is when the language witches visit Ankh-Morpork. But I feel that there's got to be witches who live in cities, and I think mm. like Granny Aching in the chalk, they probably don't look like your traditional uh, country witches. They take on a bit of a different form. So I reckon there are some witches in Ankh-Morpork who. I know this is not directly related to the question, but I've been thinking about this, and I reckon they've got to be at least one or two somewhere. But I feel like, yeah, this would kind of be like, probably veterinary would come, come out, but he's like the leader of the city, and it's, so I reckon he'd come up with a ragtag group of unexpected like people to help <laughs> deal with the, secretly deal with the pandemic in Ankh-Morbrox, so he'd probably get like young Igor or um, uh-huh. local witches, and just maybe some shining stars from the alchemist guild who aren't really looking into making gold like and just bring them together to work on the science mm. of it never in a public way just in a quiet room maybe with um leonard de Quorum in some way oh yeah yeah he'd have to so, be involved yeah so some sort of like genius group of unexpected people brought from different parts of ankh morpork who would have complementary skills to deal with it mm. Yeah, I like this. I like this a lot. I mean, I feel like it would make such a cracking book. It would be such Mm. a good book. And there would be new characters who would be invented Mm. for this purpose. And it would probably push the Discworld a bit further into the future in terms of their development of medical technology and everything. Like it would be, yeah, it would be a real thing. 
be a ragtag group. I think that would be yeah. like, handpicked and chosen by veterinary. And oh, such opportunity for riffing on things like like famous films like Outbreak or uh, World War Z because like you know it could also be a zombie analogy. Because I also wonder. Okay, the, I don't want to. We've got some other questions to ask, but I I do want to ask this: Would the disease be weird and supernatural in some way? Or would it just be a normal disease? Like if, if Pratchett was writing this and he was going to do a book that was basically an analogy for the COVID-19 pandemic, do you think he'd do something weird with the disease or would he just make the disease normal? I reckon normal with like a slight edge to it, not like a over-the-top kind of supernatural thing like people turn into birds or whatever. Like, you know, that one with where the librarian got sick and he kept turning into different things? I don't <laughs> think it'd be that level. Right. Um, because there's already like a level of magic implied with the librarian. So I think it would be pretty normal, but maybe with something to make it not too much like a disease we see here all the time. Yeah, because I feel the novel would be focused on the people trying to fix things. So it would probably be a moist book, as you said, and, and moist would be in charge of that task force. And then you've got the scientist group working away in the background I think also it would probably riff on the actual bubonic plague rather than something like COVID-19 because mm. that would be more fitting with Ankh-Morpork, yeah. I think, because it's like the way they dealt with that was they didn't deal with it all that, that, you know, it was burning down all of London. <laughs> Just for the place down, yeah. Which probably but, um, would also happen. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time some of the city had been burned. Just as a caveat, bubonic plague, horrible, awful disease. I think they can treat it now. But it's like that. One of the things is like you get bubers or something. Like yeah. it looks like noses on your body. Like big. So I pustules. feel like he would have had a field day with something like that. Mm, yeah. So yeah, like weird symptoms and things, sort of like plague, but not really. Yeah, and it's just such an opportunity. Like everyone would be involved. Mm. I mean, the watch would be involved as well. Ah, oh, look, I just, we could talk about this for like a whole episode, but we can't because we have to move on. Hopefully, we've covered a lot of the ground you were hoping we would talk about carl one quick thing i want to interject though i think carrot would get sick with it quite early on because he's a natural hero to step up in a leadership role and so taking him out of the story and upping the stakes of the disease would work quite well if we're Mm. talking about it as a book yeah i think getting carrot sick with it very early on would be a thing because you you don't know if he's going to get better or not yeah yeah no that's i can dig that bit like in the fifth elephant yeah, and also, what would he really do? He would marshal people too well to comply with things. Like, he'd like people be out, like, protesting masks, and he'd be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that, and then they wouldn't, and that would be too easy for the story. Like, they'd see him wearing one, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. we should do it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Because you have to make, if, if it, just for a book, not for actual disease management, mm. they would make someone we care about a lot as an audience have it and be at risk for the bulk of the narrative. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm sold. I like it. I like it. Yeah. So you like Carrot being sick? Okay. Uh, yeah. No, well, I mean, look, it's a different kind of challenge for him. There could be like some chapters of his like fever dream that he's having. It would be fun. You mm. know, I say chapters, yeah. there wouldn't be chapters, but well, if it's a moist book, there might be. Who knows? Mm. Look, before we move on again, Carl, I hope we've covered the kinds of things that you want. We got a bit, I think we got a bit earnest there. <laughs> I don't know that we made too many jokes, but I, it's, it's a fascinating topic. Oh, I, I wanted to say that Rintoid would quarantine for two weeks in the luggage. <laughs> yes, absolutely he would. Mm. And he'd have lots of clean laundry at the same time. 
And we'd see, like, dotted through the narrative where the luggage is going during the quarantine because the, the luggage isn't staying put. It's just, like, making its way past. Like, yeah, so I think that would be fine. Oh, that's great. I love it. Just before we move on, though, uh, again, Carl, yes, uh, I hope that we covered the things you wanted us to cover. But also, I just want to acknowledge that fellow Pratchett podcast, The Truth Shall Make You Fret, has occasionally done a great Twitter thread which they call headcanon whatever day of the week it is. I thought it was regular, but it turns out they've done it on many different days. And we'll put some links to their excellent threads because they did quite a few that were related to the pandemic, including um, what various Discworld characters might do during lockdown, what kind of masks they'd wear, what they'd be stockpiling, what hobbies they picked up in quarantine. It's just so good. Like their, their ones were great. And then, you know, listeners and other people follow them on Twitter through in some. We, we have got involved, I think only in a couple because, you know, the time difference, unfortunately, means we often missed most of it and had to go back and read it afterwards. But yeah, they're really great. And, uh, if you want more on this kind of speculation, it's a great place to look. So we'll put some links in the show notes for that. Part two, Catherine. No critique. That was perfect. Are you sure? I mean, it did sound a little bit like, you know, in the Auntie Donna show, um, Lucky For You, she's singles. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah. There's, I there's have not, but I... Inflection. I'm familiar yeah. with their work, so I can yeah. imagine it. Yes. Catherine, thank you so much for being an Ikti subscriber. Catherine had a, a question, which kind of has got two parts, but they're they're related. Catherine said, I wonder how Granny Weatherwax would do being head of the Unseen University. Now, that is quite a question. All right. Can I just answer this one real quick? Yeah, sure. Splendidly. She would just just whip it into shape. She would, <laughs> and it would take her like two months and it would be running real smoothly. I think like she would encounter some resistance for the first like 10 minutes, but she'd put them in their place. She would make it co-ed. Mm-hmm. She would make, I don't know, like if she wanted to do it, that is, and I'm not sure she would. Would she become a wizard? I think maybe like cause she's. She's not really all into, like, is she into labels and stuff? Like, I feel like... I think, well, she's very... looking. So in Equal Rights, she really comes down on the idea that witchcraft and wizardry are different. They are different. Mm. They're different at their soul. They're not just different expressions of the same magic. They're kind of a different kind of magic, a different kind of thing that you do. And what she realises and what the book is about is realising that while traditionally that's been split across gender lines, that doesn't have to be so. Women can do wizardry. They don't really explore the idea of men doing witchcraft, although I am aware, I'm pretty sure that that does come up in one of the later Tiffany books that we haven't read yet. But I think she understands that they're different. I think she, I mean, the way she has the duel with the Arts-Chancellor and Equal Rights, it's clear that she can master that same kind of very showy, big spells kind of magic that wizards can do. And I really get the feeling that she could be both. Like, there's two ways you could go in. You could go in and you could abolish the words wizard and witch and just make it a learning of magic place with different streams. Mm. Or you could make it not just wizards, it's wizards and witchcraft and slowly over time make it not gendered. So it's just who has the aptitude or inclination to go either way and over time also develop maybe something that's a crossover between the two and see how all of that evolves together. Mm. I disagree a bit because I feel like particularly in A Hat Full of Sky, she's so devoted to the idea of witchcraft not being like wizardry. She sees what Mrs. Earwig, Mrs. Irvage, Mm. is doing as being codifying it and turning it into this sort of symbols and books and nonsense that 
wizardry is actually about, but which she is like, that's not what witchcraft is. So I don't know that she would turn the school into one that also teaches witchcraft, because I don't know that you could teach witchcraft in a university the way that she imagines witchcraft to be. It's cultivating, so, like, you could have it, like, it's not, like, lectures and things. Mm. You would have, like, that mentorship program where there are, like, research witches or the different ones that have, like, cottages around and they have mentor. Mm. I don't know if there's, like, a comparable sort of school thing where you get hands-on experience and things to learn the craft. Not in a formal environment. Like, as in, it's a place that facilitates learning and is a hub for it, but they would also, like, she probably would have, like, different outposts as well that, like, already exist. So, mm. like, Unseen University would be, like, the building. Otherwise, she'd just be starting up, like, a an education center or hub for witchcraft. And the question is, it's specifically being head of the Unseen University. So, I guess it would be, like, how do you shift that to also facilitate the wizards? Or are you getting rid of them? So... Mm. I feel like she would cultivate both while bridging the gap eventually, but you couldn't achieve that in one fell swoop. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's that bit in Equal Rights where she sort of thinks about staying on in the city. And from memory, like she's sort of imagining that you could be a new kind of city witch, which kind of goes back to what I was saying in the the first part. But I wonder if that's what she would do is it would just be different. It wouldn't be the same as other witchcraft. But I still feel like I don't think that would be what she would do. I think she would concentrate would on do it. making yeah. wizards do their shit better, <laughs> for want of a better term. Would she want to do it? I mean, the question is posed, like, how would she do if she was doing it? But would she want to do it? If she wanted to do it, she would be doing it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. So I think, I think no. Yeah, yeah. But it's the potential to, like, I do feel like if she was running it, she, she'd be like, no silly hats, no robes, mm. none of that. You just do your, your wizard magic, but without any of the symbols. What would you see the point of it being? The point of wizardry. Mm. Like, as a kind of stated point, the books really kind of get into the idea that people who can do magic should be kept as far away from other people as possible. So this tradition of wizards being in a university where they just learn how to do it and then don't do it, or they just use it on each other. Uh, in the early days to, you know, to kill each other off and advance up the ladder. That seems to be the main purpose of having a wizard university. Because they don't actually, they very rarely use it for anything practically useful. They come up with like hex and stuff. I feel like she could see, like, using her rational nature, I think she could find uses for the nonsense they do that would have community benefits. So I reckon she would be able to like harness their nonsense for good. And that could be a motivation. Yeah. Because they are doing stuff, it's just they're not doing it constructively or for the greater good necessarily. And so if you had someone who was like, oh, actually, if we directed this a different way, if we harness this a different way, it could be good. Like you could tamp down their whole like vicious trying to kill their way to the top thing or Mm. like direct that in a different way while also using their research and skills and, you know, magic for something else. Mm. Yeah. I think if I am honest, I feel like the real answer to this question is if Granny Weatherwax decides to do something, she's it's going to be done well. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not, she's not going to, you know, she's either not going to choose to do something she can't do or she's going to make it happen one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. We should do part two of Catherine's topic, which was how would Angua do if she was running the watch? And I think this is a very different kind of question because this is much more in line with what Angua already wants and does. Do you think? 
I feel bad because my gut instinct is she wouldn't be good running the watch mm. because okay. I think she, and this is not for pun reasons, she is more of a lone, like she's a team player, but she's also a lone wolf. So I don't know how that would translate to leadership skills. Like I think she cares. I think she wouldn't do a bad job, but I don't, mm. I think she'd do, a, like, it's, it's, it's complicated because like maybe it's just because it's so hard to imagine anyone other than Vimes doing it, but. Mm. Or carrot, yeah, I guess. I, you know, I, no, I, I don't. I don't rate Carrot as leader of the watch, honestly. No. To be honest, I think he's a good, general, affable thing. But I think you have to do some real bastard things in that position to make it work for everyone else. You have to take on some of the darkness so that other people can't take it. And I don't think Carrot could do that. You'd... I think Angua could do that. Mm. I think Vimes does do that. Would do... So I would choose Angua over Carrot. Do you think they that role. they do well running it together? Maybe, maybe. But I also think you need one person who can pull rank, can pull veto power, and who knows everything, rather than a partnership. Because hmm. I don't really think you can have an equal partnership leader role in that situation and have it work successfully. Because when you clash, then what happens? Yeah. Okay. So I would choose Angua over a Carrot. It's hard for me to picture anyone other than Vimes. I think she has like changed a lot over the course of the books though so she's like getting more and more suited for it and maybe mm. she's even a little bit like tapped by vimes for it in some ways that like he's sort of training her a little bit so with more time yeah perhaps because i mean the the thing i was going to say is that i agree with you that she is a lone wolf sorry about the pun uh again because we so often see her active parts of watch books being she goes off and does something and doesn't necessarily get herself into trouble although that does happen in books like Jingo but she sort of just goes off and does her own thing like I mean it happens in The Fifth Elephant happens in Jingo happens in you know several other books in big or little ways rather than doing the part of the job that she's asked to do necessarily all the time but so does Vimes, so maybe like and yeah, if this Vimes is... were at the same point, you'd say the same thing, that like he's not quite there yet. Well, this is what I this is where I was going with it, was that Vimes also absolutely does the same thing. You know, he's always going off solo. He's he's that classic thing. It's like it's like a Star Trek captain who's always going on away missions, and you're like, You're the captain of the ship. You can't go down and talk to the dangerous aliens. That's what you have a, a right hand man to do, so that, you know, if it all goes wrong, the ship still has a captain. You know, it's uh, but that's not how Vimes operates. Like, he's got to get in there and do the thing himself. And I think Angua definitely has that instinct. But also, I mean, she is nobility. And, and even though she has rejected it, I think I think she has got the ability to command people and tell them what to do. We don't get to see her doing that much in the books because even though she outranks many of the other um, watch officers, she doesn't, you don't see her in that position ordering them around. I think she's the most natural successor. I just, I think I, there needs to be a little bit more time, which there would be because Vimes would be around for quite a lot longer in yeah. theory. So, but I mean, yeah. I, the other thing is that like, he's already by the later books, he's not, he's really practically from day to day, not running the watch, you know, he's kind of the higher, he's like the commandant or the commissioner of the, of the police force rather than the main person in the precinct, you know. Yeah, but I feel like specifically in the Ankhmore watch, not extrapolating to a greater police context or anything, I think it's still important who's at the top for the, like, even if he's not doing the day to day stuff, even if he's not at the 
of his like I think he mm. is still like kind of like a a figurehead. He's not a figurehead, but he's still the leader, even if he's not yeah. literally sitting in his office every day. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, so I think she'll do a good job eventually. She just needs a bit more time. But yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if she was thrust into the role for whatever reason. I think she would thrive. But yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I will just throw in a, a comment, and I know we haven't talked about this in detail, and I think you still haven't seen the show, but the Angua that you see in the Watch TV series, who's quite different to the one in the books, um, I think could definitely run that Watch and would do a mm. great job and is already clearly second in command at the start of the show. So it's, yeah, that's a very different situation. But then also the Lady Sybil of that show could also <laughs> run the Watch if she wanted to, although I'm not really sure that she would. So yeah, I think I just wanted to throw that out there as an alternate, but that's something we can maybe return to uh, because people have said to us that they would like us to do uh, some episodes about the watch. So at some point we'll get around to that. Uh, fitting it into the schedule <laughs> around doing <laughs> the monthly book episodes is not always easy, but we will, we will do it. We'll find a time and we'll do it. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for that question, Catherine. That was great. I hope that wasn't too earnest. We're getting, we're not doing a lot of jokes. I think we just, we're just, you know, this is a chance for us to really nerd out these questions. They're just so weird. And I mean, the next one also is like that. Part three. Soren. Thank you, Soren, for being one of our earliest, in fact, subscribers and being with us from the start. We really appreciate that. And you've sent in. (laughs) I think the most metaphysical question of all, really, which I love, it's very simple, straight up, are golems alive? Well, we can't even decide when people are alive consistently (laughs) across the world. So I feel like it's just a matter of deciding whether golems are alive. There's no correct answer. Yeah. So, I mean... Let me let me ask a simpler question, Liz. How would you define life? Oh, duh, that's like that's so <laughs> difficult. Because, like, in some medical situations, like, is someone dead? It depends on like their heart might be beating, but their brain isn't functioning. Are they alive? Like, their body is alive. It, like, mm. I think a a key question to this is: Does being alive matter? Yes. In this context, and if so, why? And I think in Terry Pratchett's universe, being alive doesn't matter because technically vampires are dead, zombies are dead, and or, or not alive rather than dead, I suppose. And I would argue that golems are not alive, but that does not mean they don't have a life or a purpose or a value or feelings or emotions. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense? It does make sense. They don't have a heart, they don't have a brain, they don't have, like, so by human, our world, measures, etc., they can't be alive. Well, but yes, but I, I think there's two different questions here. There's, are they a person, which is the sort of question answered in things like the Star Trek episode, The Measure of a Man, and I apologize if I've got that episode name wrong, because it's been a while since I've watched it, but that's the one where Starfleet wants to dismantle Lieutenant Commander Data, the android, so they can really figure out how he works because nobody truly understands except the guy who built him and he's dead. And so they can make more of him, but he doesn't want to be dismantled. So there's a court case to decide whether he's really a person and can decide for himself if he wants to do that or whether he's just a bit of equipment that Starfleet can do what they want with. And they end up deciding that he is a person. 
And that's, mm. you know, that perennial, the golems clearly fit that kind of discussion in the context of the disc world, like they are the equivalent of, of robots. So that's one question. Are they people? And I think, you know, that's kind of very much answered mm. in the books as a yes. But are they alive? That's a different question. That's more complicated. Alive is like a body question, though, right? Like, whereas, like, are they people or do they have value or autonomy, etc.? That's more like a soul and a mind question, even if you don't literally have a brain. Yeah, no, I agree. This sort of comes back to some of the stuff we talked about in the Science of Discworld episode, particularly when I was talking about the book that Jack and Ian wrote, uh, What Does a Martian Look Like?, which, are, you know, you have to expand your definition of what life is. It's a definite no that golems are not a form of biological life because mm. they don't have cells, they don't have mitochondria, they don't have genetic information. They are clay magically given life and arguably a soul. Although the death of Ang Hammerad in Going Postal seems to kind of unambiguously answer the question that they do have whatever the Discworld equivalent of a soul is because it goes on to have an afterlife. But whether they're alive or not, I mean, Vimes certainly doesn't think so in Feet of Clay. I think the problem here is that we're using the word life and alive, the same word for actually like a whole bunch of different things. Like we're limited mm. by vocabulary because we're using life to be like, an animated body that can move around and has thoughts. And we're also using it for like something with a soul or with a philosophy that can like exist without a physical body that is, that conforms to our biological standards, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all different things. So we're calling them all life, which is like, even in the sentence you said before, that's like about them not being alive, but they can have a life. Like, I think it's a vocabulary problem. We need different words for all of these things. To me, alive, because I probably have a medical background, is to do with whether your physical body is sparking and talking to itself, basically, mm. to a degree. But to have a life is different. So, like, yeah, not in our world necessarily, because if we're talking about Terry Pratt as well, where things that don't have that same body, like a troll, or like, is a troll alive? Does a troll have a heart and a brain? Or do you have to have a soul to be alive? Like, do animals have souls? Like, it becomes like a whole thing. So I think it's a voc limited vocabulary problem. I think your Star Trek example is really good. I don't love that it's like, are they a person? Because that's using like a person as a gold standard of what deserves to exist in the world. Well, autonomy. yeah. As in, but that's their terminology, not yours. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really easy question to answer if you talk about alive in the sense that we generally accept it no they're not alive but i think mm. they deserve to i think they have autonomy feelings and thoughts and should have rights i guess that's yeah. the way to view it and it's sad once they can no longer exist because yeah. we again we don't have quite the right word for it like so when that one um gets exploded and has his experience with death like that's sad but it hasn't died Really, it has just ceased having the thing that made it exist in the world. Although it's it's a little bit like the idea of final death for vampires. Because vampires are in a bit of a similar state as golems, mm. which is that you can destroy them in a way, but they can come back unless mm. you manage to find a way to destroy them permanently, which is very, very difficult. And that's also true of golems. And Anghamarad's the only golem that we see in the books who is, well, apart from the the one that goes mad, the Golem King in, in 
Feet of Clay. Um, spoiler alert, <laughs> we haven't read that, but we have covered it on the podcast. You know, they get destroyed, but other golems can be remade from their clay and they're still them. And I mean, that's in Feet of Clay, it's not ambiguous. Vimes doesn't think they're alive. I mean, he says, you know, trolls and dwarfs, fine, even the undead are alive in a way, even if it is a bloody awful way for the most part. But these things, they're just things that do work. You know, he sees them as, as like automatons. By the end of it, he sorts, he sees Dorfall in particular as a person. Um, but, you know, he's a bit like, eh. um, but, he, but I mean, I guess it comes back to like, for example, if I took your mind and took all the computerizations of it and uploaded that eh. to a USB with a lot of capacity and then plug that USB into a robot that looks and functions exactly like you, except yes. it's not biological, it's all machinery, but it thinks like you, it has your memories, it would act exactly the same as you and your physical body would. Is that one alive? I think our instinct would be to say no, because we understand that in some way that's fundamentally different. But I think also we need to expand our idea of what life is to say, yes, it is alive. See, I, I think we fundamentally disagree on that. Like, I... I don't think we need to expand what our definition of alive is. I think we need new words to describe the things beyond being right. in a biological body that conforms to this checklist of what alive is, which I guess could arguably be the same kind of thing. You're talking about including more things under that umbrella, and I'm saying the umbrella's there, but we need different names for every spoke and part and piece of it so that we can articulate more clearly what we're talking about. So, like, I think the big picture is the same. We're just, yeah, I think we need more vocabulary because I think alive is a limiting term and I think alive is a biological body that does all these things because there is a checklist for it. But the things that make it worthwhile being in the world are not necessarily tethered to having a biological body. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, and also for the record, I think Dorfall agrees with you because mm. Dorfall describes itself or himself, because he does sort of take on a, a gendered pronoun, as not being alive as well at the end of Feet of Clay when he meets up with Kieran Ridcully and the other priests. And he actually says, I suggest you take me and smash me and grind the bits into fragments and pound the fragments into powder and mill them again to the finest dust there can be, and I believe you will not find a single atom of life. But then, you know, he also challenges them to do the same thing for a human being one of them mm. and they're like but that's not fair because like if we rebake your clay you'll come back to life and then they're like oh wait hang on <laughs> is he alive mm. or not we're having a bit of a theological difficulty here so even on the disc world while Dorfel might say i'm not alive he is aware that he has this other kind of existence that's kind of what you're talking about so i think he'd be a good one to talk to about this <laughs> and probably he would come up with a great word for it yeah, because I think we're putting too much value in life being tethered to the biological body that we all know about, or that assumably most of us have, mm. like a brain and a heart, and that's the kind of thing that we... But that does yeah, mm. it's the vocabulary is... I'm repeating myself, but yeah, we need more words, is basically it. I will say, I think it is a bit of a semantic argument, because the other word that you're coming up with, I think, would then be what I would say, you know, if you change the definition of life to be broader it would be this other word that you want to come up with and then life would be just biological life. But then I feel like we already have the form of biological life. We have a way to describe that. But No, but then I then you're just talking about taking like calling life biological life and then calling the thing that I'm saying life, which is giving it a new term, but giving that old term a new term 
as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, which is arguably what I'm saying, but you're just moving the words around. That's okay. Yes. Well, this is what I mean. I think we, we broadly agree, even if, you know, semantically we are coming at it from a slightly different, uh, yeah. space. So I think it's just, we, we, I want more specificity. And I think to include more things under the banner of alive mm. would, would be confusing because then we would struggle to define it as much as we are now. Yeah. I just want to throw this in there. If we were to throw in the Sesame Street thing, you know, is it alive? They had the song. If it moved, if it grows, if it breathes. And I'm like, well, some things don't do any of those things and they're still alive. So this yeah. is, this is a lot more difficult than even Sesame Street can help with. So yes, I personally look just to give a yes or no answer. Are golems alive? I think yes. I think no, but I think that they matter just as much as a human, a dwarf, or a troll does. So you would say world. they're definitely people. Yeah, they have personhood. No, but like they're the they're definitely the thing that we don't have a word for that shows value of being in society and should have rights. But they're not alive by the definition of the word alive. But that doesn't mean that they are any less valuable. We're probably not going to definitely agree on how and what alive really means. So no. maybe that's enough on golems for now. Well, perhaps that's enough about golems, but that is not the only thing that Soren asked us. There is a little bonus question. Is fire alive? I mean, I feel like I've answered it quite comprehensively <laughs> with my, my golem answer. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, um, but also like, does it deserve to vote and you know that is a different no. no that is a different question liz that is is it a person is fire alive it is not okay by well, the definition of alive as i know it it is not alive well but i can yeah i mean by that that same sesame street style definition that i was talking about before in a way it eats and breathes and moves and makes more of itself but the problem is that what fire is is a difficult question. The reason it's been an element in so many cultures, as in, you know, like a sort of a fundamental building block of the world, is it is a very complicated thing to understand. So much so, and this is my, this is why I was so happy that Soren added this little bit onto this question, because I get to talk about one of my favorite things. Uh, Alan Alder, star of MASH, is also a passionate science communicator. And he started a thing which was originally called the Flame Challenge in its first year because he wanted someone to answer the question, what is a flame, in such a way that I think the, the goal was an eight-year-old could understand it, maybe a ten-year-old. And he had all these people send in these different things and they eventually, he got a bunch of kids to vote on the one that they felt was the best and that they understood. And there's a little song. And it's, because it's not a simple concept, you know, it's about gases and bits of, um, you know, stuff that's, the part of particles from the thing that's being burned, you know, so it's, it, but there's a lot of things that will go together to create the flame and the situation has to be correct. And yeah, so, um, it's, that's a complicated, just what is fire is hard enough, uh, <laughs> as opposed to is it alive? I mean, I guess it's again, it comes back to the thing of like, we made up words and we slapped them on top of things. So like, just because we've categorized things, in certain ways, like when you get something like fire that sort of subverts categorization, that doesn't, that might just point to that we've categorized everything wrong and we don't have the correct words to describe things mm. in general. So, yeah, I think it's, um, 
It's a great question, and there's a lot of time we could spend talking about it. It might be, again, a vocabulary problem, and I mean, we might just need a, re- a new language and redefinition of a lot of things. Because, yeah, it's just because it doesn't fit neatly. It doesn't, yeah. I, I Once something's in the category, you get, you give it certain, like, certain things spring off of that. But doesn't necessarily mean something not in the category can't have those things as well. So, but, yeah. But golems and fire are the same thing, is what you're saying. Is. No. <laughs> no. And also, it makes it really complicated because, like, what if fire is alive but golems are not? But golems have fire and then, like, are they, like, then, like, hosting a parasitic thing? Like, are, are golems actually multiple hold alive on, hold things? Hold on, no. Golems don't have fire in them, though. They do, don't they? No, they don't have fire in them. You you have to bake them in fire to make them, but they don't have a flame inside them. What's making their eyes glow? Well, that's a good question. But I thought it was because they had like a little like a fire burning inside. Look, I don't think that's a usual part of the mythology. I thought it was like of the Terry Pratchett ones. Like what? Like they have the chem in the head. Yeah, but that doesn't literally make their eyes glow. Surely. No. Well, it's just paper. Yeah. I. Hmm. Well, I mean, you come. Up, you you have a good point. I don't. I just always thought there was fire inside them because of the way they were described. I know, like, too much fire and then water made, like, the problem, but I thought they had, like, a eternal flame kind of thing. <laughs> and bangles. I mean, that's, yeah. Look, that's beautiful. I'm going to choose to believe that's true, regardless of what it says in the books now. Uh, let's, let's move on to the next one. I think we answered that well enough. Yeah. <clears throat> Part four. Jess and David. Our only partnered... Well, I don't know that's true. Perhaps there are individual people who've chosen to support us separately who are partners. I don't know. But I love that Jess and David have supported the podcast together and they listen to it, not at the same time, they listen to it separately because they're big Pratchett nerds and then they talk about it afterwards and it's such a lovely story to hear that from them. So thank you, Jess and David, for your support. I love that. And thank you so much for this question, which is, how has Pratchett and or the Discworld informed your own personal philosophy? Which is, I mean, wow. I think it's safe to say most people who've read Pratchett have found their philosophy influenced by his writing in one way or another. And I reckon it'd be almost impossible to, this is not a cop-out answer, or maybe it is. Like, I reckon there's some things I could certainly point to, but I reckon on a subconscious level, there's probably a lot of things that we're not aware of that has been informed by Discworld. Like you've read it, you've absorbed it. You don't know that you're changing your mind or forming parts of how you think as you read it. So on a subconscious level, there's probably a lot of things that I could link to Discworld, but wouldn't know about. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true, and particularly true for people who started reading the books quite early. Mm. Something that comes up for me again and again is how good or bad is not, like, necessarily inherent, and what you choose to do counts for a lot. Yeah. Because you see that in a lot of the characters and a lot of the ones that we get to see inside the minds of, because I guess, like, a lot of more superficial fiction or, like, the stuff we watch or take in when we're younger it's like people are good or bad and they think in this is how i should act and that's what i'm going to do you don't sort of ever see people be tempted to do the wrong thing or tempted to take the path of power or tempted to do ill and then see them choose to do what is 
the right thing. Mm. You just see them do the right thing. You don't see the struggle on the inside. And I think he does a really good job of showing how characters like Vimes or Granny Weatherwax, they have the choice to go either way and they could be very successful at being villainous or sometimes doing the wrong thing could be seen as being the right thing, but they choose the more right thing. But that's after struggling within themselves. And I think that's something that stuck with me is that it's not necessarily your thoughts don't make you bad. This makes it sound like I'm just thinking about doing murders all the time. I'm not. But um, it's how you choose to behave or how you choose to act on your thoughts that's more important than having the thoughts themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with that. I, I saw something someone I follow on Twitter wrote recently was that they're sick of seeing people say, if you're worried about whether you're a good person or not, that means you are a good person because a lot of people who do and continue to do awful things worry about whether they're a good person or not, but they don't ever stop and do something about it. And I think mm. that's, I, I was like, yeah, I mean, like it's a first step. Like you have to wonder that in order to make a choice, but then you also have to make the choice and do the thing. And it's not about whether you're a good or a bad person. It's about being, it's about doing, you know, it's active. And it's continuous as well, because like, if you sort of go, okay, well, I'm a good person who sometimes does bad things, you can excuse yourself for a lot of stuff, and that's yeah. crap, really. Like, if you sort of go through life thinking, yeah, I'm a good person, I like veered off a little bit here, but overall I'm good. No, I think the choice, like doing the right thing is a constant choice every step of the way. Yeah. And I don't think it's just locked in at an early stage, and I think it's really a cop-out if you sort of go, I'm a good person who does bad things. I've, yeah. I'm repeating myself now, but yeah, I think... It's easier to say you're a good person and then give yourself an out. Mm. Whereas if you're just like, I am a person who chooses to do the right thing continuously whenever I'm presented with it, but the choice, Mm. that's more valuable and has more of an impact, really. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing on that sort of topic is that I think Pratchett does a really good job of presenting those choices in a way that really works. Like it's very, video games do this all the time. They offer you this supposed choice between good and evil. There's not really a choice because the good and evil are so obviously extremely, even to the point of parody, good and evil. Like, you know, here's a merchant. Do you pay them fairly for their goods or do you just kill them and take all their stuff? You're like, well, you know, one of those what's, is not just bad. What's the right it's, answer, Ben? It's clearly evil. Well, you pay them fairly and you, that's the right answer. But I okay. think, right, but that's a stupid one. But that's the kind of moral, in inverted commas, or ethical dilemma that these video games often present you. And they're not very good at presenting a grey area or really ever giving you an incentive to be evil. And I think one of the things that Pratchett does really well and illustrates is the idea, and I've heard it summed up in the phrase, you know, it's not really a moral unless it costs you something. I think that's true. Like, it's very easy to say, well, I believe in this, or I think this is right. But if you never act on it, if you never do something that costs you something, it doesn't have to be like, you know, a horrible injury or thousands of dollars, but it needs to be that you are choosing to do something right, even though it's not convenient or easy. That's where a moral decision becomes important, because it's it's not hard to be good when being good is easy and convenient. But, you know, for someone like Granny Weatherwax, being good is neither easy nor convenient. It's hard work. It's constant hard work. And she consistently chooses to do that hard work, you know. And and so does Sam Vimes to a degree. 
you know, and a lot of his protagonists. I know, like, Disney gets crapped on a lot because it's just something that's been around since most of us were children, and it is somewhere where you're presented good and evil for the first time repeatedly as a kid. And I think I want to point specifically to, for example, Beauty and the Beast, which is my favorite Disney film, one of my top three favorite films in general. Mm. But the thing that comes up across Disney, the bad guy usually dies, and it's usually not by the hero's hand. It's Mm. usually they do something and they get killed, like they... Gaston tries to stab the beast after the beast has um, forgiven him and he loses his balance and he falls. So it's not the hero choosing to kill the villain. The villain's own villainy kills the villain itself. Yeah. So the hero is never actually put in a position where they have to make a tough choice. And I'm not saying that they should be the one who kills the person, but you never actually sort of see a villain survive and what happens beyond that. Like you kill them off and the hero is never put in a moral quandary And so it's just very simple. And I know it's for children, so I understand it's kind of like... But often we don't go beyond that. So, and again, just one more gripe about Beauty and the Beast. Doing the maths, I can't remember. He's some ridiculous age. Like, he's, like, turning 21 and he's been under this curse for 10 years or something. So he's 11 when this old woman shows up at this castle. Where's his parents? And he's like, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. I won't let you into my castle. Also, where's his servants? And she's like, actually, I'm a beautiful enchantress and I was here to trick you and now I'm going to turn you, you 11-year-old, into a beast for 10 years because you didn't let me into your castle even though I'm a stranger. Like, it's built on a shaky moral as it is. And he's supposed to have learned a lesson from that. I'm like, what lesson? I think the only thing that happened there is that, you know, he was abused as a child and he's passed that abuse on to others. You know, that's not the intended moral of the story, I don't think, but you know, he's also like a literal child that got turned into a hulking beast. I, I don't psychologically that probably wouldn't be no. great. Although it's a good metaphor for puberty. Yeah, where's his parents? Yeah, agreed. I don't know where. His and also, are. why did she turn all of those like the servants into like candlesticks and like children into teacups and stuff? Like, Magic. was was Chip born? Okay, During the- that time, because he's three. Like, did, did this is, Mrs. This Potts is, give birth to crockery? This is a horrible reality that I'm not ready to face. Uh, so maybe we can go, <laughs> we'll get back on topic. But I, because um, uh, yeah. they have to age across that time, otherwise he wouldn't be turning 21. He'd be turning into like a, an 11 year old. She's like, oh, we fell in love, and that's awkward. <laughs> So, well, yeah, Chip had to be born in that time. Look, it was written in France in the 18th century, I think, the original version of the story, maybe the early 19th century. You know how they did the maths of it, like that they would have been caught up in the revolution? No, I think it was pre-revolutionary No, France. like, and after they got married and stuff, then they would have, like, Belle would have been, Oh, like, I see, yes. Part of the bourgeois. Anyway, it's, you know, it's a whole thing. Okay. So, what we're saying is your personal philosophy has been better informed by Terry Pratchett than by Beauty and the Beast. Is that yeah. what you're suggesting? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that Terry Pratchett has a his greater insight into how to be a good person than most of other literature or film that is around does. Mm. He- and for me, it's that's actually quite illuminating. Yeah, he tries to avoid that Disney or like cowboy western morality where the bad guys always die. And, I mean, cowboys have it a bit differently in that they do generally kill the bad guy, but it's seen as fine. And then Disney has the thing where, yeah, the villain is sort of hoist on their own petard. They die by accident or because of their own villainous plans. And then Doctor Who, and I think I've said this before on the podcast, has this version of that as well, where usually the Doctor has a hand in defeating the villains if they get blown up or killed. But 
it's usually because the doctor offers them the opportunity to reform or do the right thing and they choose not to and that plays into the trap. Like the classic one is the doctor hands over this powerful Time Lord weapon to Davros, creator of the Daleks, and says, please don't use it. Like, just give it back to me. And he says, no, I'm going to use it to destroy you. And then the doctor's pre-programmed it that if he activates it, it goes and blows up Davros's own planet, the home of the Daleks. So you're like, wow, okay. He's kind of, that's his fault in a way. But also the doctor's got a hand in it. But mm. the doctor doesn't pay a cost for that, you know? He might be a bit sad. He's a bit he- sad, but, you know, it's not like, for example- in sorcery, where Rincewind decides to do the right thing and save Coin, but that means he's stuck in the dungeon dimensions. He does the right thing and it's not free of cost. And, you know, Vimes often gets away with things and ends up, you know, with a reward. But, you know, particularly in the later books, he has to make increasingly difficult decisions and accept things that are personally not okay for him. And if you look at the truth, like the, the, I've forgotten their names, but the villain who's like snorting everything except for drugs. Uh, Mr. Tulip, yeah. Yeah, he's bad, but he's give again, it's the thing you're constantly presented with the option to do better. And he finally does, even, even though that's after his death. Mm. And it does cost him something. He's just like wandering through, like essentially limbo for a while until he does better. Mm. But that's the thing, like, you're not born a good or a bad person. You're presented with choices and you are redeemable. Mm. So I think that's a good example because he's put up against the other villain yeah. who chooses again not to do the right. So, yeah, it's choice. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, he writes a lot about inequality and discrimination and, and he touches on a lot of themes there. He doesn't always get it 100% right, particularly when he's writing about race. He's much more successful using the dwarfs as an allegory then he is using different ethnicities of human because he falls into the trap of writing these kind of caricatures that are in themselves quite racist without really realizing it, I think. But he still gets this message across that it's our culture or it's our, there's this political will that turns us against each other. And again, you know, it's not about some people are racist and that means they're awful. And I think that idea of that being a label that is a, a person is racist, it's not, well, a person can be racist. They can also choose not to be and educate themselves. And they can go further than that, as we are now more commonly talking about and be anti-racist, which is very important. And I think that message, despite the clumsiness of some of those books, was still a useful one for me who grew up fairly insulated from that kind of stuff. I mean, the the small town I grew up in was surprisingly multicultural for a small country town, but that still meant it was mostly white folks in an Australian context. And I didn't see a lot of racism, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. It was probably stuff that as a teenager and a young person, I did not recognize because it didn't happen to me or directly to the people that I knew. It was easy growing up in that sort of atmosphere. In fact, growing up as a white person, it's easy to just think, oh, only awful people are racist. Mm. It's not a thing that people casually do. And so even even the clumsiness of some of those ways that Pratchett wrote about it was still a bit of an eye-opener. And I think those Johnny books, you know, where he it's set in a real-world context and he just drops some of that stuff in. And also some of the stuff about gender, which, he, again, he doesn't always get right, gets much better at as he goes along. 
also the kind of racial and cultural tension stuff he gets better at, like by the time you get to Monstrous Regiment, which is a book I'm really looking forward to us reading again and discussing on the podcast. But that has such a lot of great stuff to say about, you know, nations and pride. Like I think, I think it's almost like he's having another go at the things he wanted to talk about in Jingo, but now he's got a bit more nuanced understanding as well as talking about the gender dimension of that as well. So it's, yeah, I don't, I'm kind of just rambling about all the things that he wrote about, but I, I guess what I mean is that it was a, a very accessible way for me to understand the beginnings of some of those ideas, and it was a good underpinning for things that I still had to learn about a lot more in depth later in life. Hmm. I don't think you read Pratchett and you you come out of it as a moral philosopher, but <laughs> you do you do get a real good sense and a real good understanding of the basics of humanism. But I say that. And yet, I have to acknowledge that I'm pretty sure there are plenty of people who we would not consider politically progressive or open to change who read Pratchett and like it. It's a bit like when I found out that one of our most conservative politicians at a federal level is a big Doctor Who fan. And I'm like, how is this possible <laughs> that you could watch the same show and hold these views that are so antithetical to me that seem also to me to be antithetical to what the show is about and what the main character stands for. And in the same way, I'm, I'm sure there's probably some people who've read Pratchett and believe things wildly different to me. People project their own experience into other people's words all the time hmm. or, or read them superficially and don't see the deeper message. Yeah, that's true. Like people who love Paddington and are like anti-refugees. Yeah, so weird. Yeah, but they can always do a spin to back up their own view. So, yeah, there's always there's always someone to ruin it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the class stuff is a big one for me too. Mm. Like the even just something as simple as the Vimes Boots theory of economic inequality that people love to quote. He just – he had a, such a gift for putting what could be in some hands a, a complex idea into simple terms – and, and I think that really nails, I mean, you know, it's only one dimension of economic inequality, but it really kind of cleverly illustrates the basic problem that people with more money will have more money. Like they don't just spend more. They, mm. they don't need to. And in fact, they can spend less in many ways because of the way that capitalism works and the economies of scale and all that kind of business. And there's lots of little bits of stuff like that in the book. I mean, we've recently had some really lovely emails from a listener who is a psychologist and was explaining that they found the way that Pratchett describes in the Tiffany books, first, second, and third thoughts, a really useful way to talk about metacognition and thinking about your own emotions and being able to examine how you're feeling and thinking. And I think that sort of stuff is wonderful. And it makes me really appreciate a good analogy. Mm. We absolutely could talk about this again for like a full episode because there's just so many different ways, yes. subconsciously or otherwise. That, yeah. Are there any other bits, though? Because I'm aware that I have just <laughs> talked an awful lot. Uh, no, I feel like I've said my key one. And if I start on my own train, I will just basically summarize the disc world. And I feel like that's probably, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Full episode, another time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Part five, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Also a long-time subscriber who recently, like Jess and David, decided to become an Eek tier subscriber just in time for this episode of the Eek Club. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And Frank 
I, I, this is a great one to end with, I think, Liz, because mm. this is a very specific question, but I think a very fascinating one. And I'm going to read it out in full. Frank says, I started reading Terry Pratchett with Diggers back in the early 90s when he was a fantasy writer. As the Discworld progressed, so did its move towards technology and more of a fiction genre. Had he been able to continue writing forever, would the Discworld have made the leap towards a science fiction genre, albeit with a touch of magic? Think the wizards in charge of a spaceship. And there is a second part, but we'll we'll come back to this, because I think the second one is also a fun question. But this is such a great question, because I I mean, acknowledging that I haven't read the last couple of books, so although I know that, you know, steam power comes to the Discworld in Raising Steam, and, you know, we've even in A Hatful of Sky, we've seen things like germ theory become accepted on the Discworld. We know that there's that progression. And it is getting by that stage a little bit steampunky around the edges, uh, which I love. What do you what do you reckon? It's very possible, though probably not in a planned way, because I think it is a very sort of chronological look at the world. And after so, like he he definitely could spend a lot of time just like camped out in the now. Like as we've said before, like I would love to read his Brexit novel. That <laughs> would have been amazing. And so like it is possible that he would have just kept mirroring things that are happening now but a move towards the future or in towards a more science fiction slant also makes sense and it doesn't necessarily mean that he wouldn't have stopped mir- like it can do both like for example yeah you can have your trains alongside more medieval things so very possibly like it's a great question i don't think he'd have sat down and gone all right next science fiction i think it is a natural progression in his writing? Well, I think he kind of saw them as a piece, you know, because he started out wanting to write more science fiction-y things. As we know, like, when he first had the idea for the High Megas, which became the Long Earth books, he thought that would be the thing that he would write, and then it just happened that, you know, the weird comic fantasy thing that he wrote was the one that got popular. Mm. Um, But he always, and again, I think this is something I've said on the podcast before, but he approaches fantasy from a very science fiction kind of aspect. If we think about the things that science fiction usually does, which is to Mm. hold up a bit of a mirror to the real world, to use allegory and extrapolation to examine social um, and political issues in the real world, which is something that mainstream fantasy writing often does not do. I mean, sometimes it does, but I think Pratchett does it more than most, I think is fair to say. And that's a very science fiction-y way to write fantasy. Um, Mm. And he also thinks about the fantasy from a very sciencey perspective. I mean, he kind of dropped that as he went along, but, you know, we're about to do the light fantastic. And when you look at those early books, he really thinks about the mechanics of how the world that he's invented might work and how magic works and interprets it through physics. But it's not always the cleanest line between the two genres. And I think that's great. Mm. So, yeah, I guess it's more like which way it would switch towards. Do you think he'd ever do aliens on the Discworld? I mean, he's kind of... The thing is, in a fantasy, you've always got the out of, like, doing elves or interdimensional beings, you know, like the the things from the dungeon dimensions instead, which kind of take the place of aliens. And the closest, I guess, he's gotten is, you know, the weird alien shopping trolley mall beast from um, Reaper Man. I think there'd have to be, like, a really good social reason for it. Like, it'd have to fit in very naturally for a story he was planning to do and aliens would be... Like, it wouldn't be like, how do I work in aliens? It would be like, oh, aliens are the natural fit to illustrate this point. Mm. And I can't think of one. No. Really. I mean, if you're doing a sci-fi or if you're doing something set in the real world, you kind of use aliens 
because it's the most plausible kind of life form from somewhere else mm. rather than, oh, it's, you know, elves from the other world or what have you. And, you know, and he does that in the Long Earth series, you know, there's the creatures that live on the other versions of Earth. Mm. So I think not necessarily that have had to be a good story reason for them. Are there any... Because he does also use a lot of science fiction tropes in the Discworld. Like time travel, which he uses several times, is really a more of a science fiction thing. Like you don't see it that much in fantasy. And he pl- he loves to play with the mechanics of that as well. You know, like what if you change the past? Can you change the past? What if you meet yourself and you become part of your own story? Really looking forward to doing Nightwatch at the end of the yeah, year. Yeah, I am so excited. And Thief of Time as well. I'm trying to think, you know, what other sci-fi tropes he's done. Because I feel like he has done quite a few, some time travel. I guess I just never really, I isn't this, I'm really struggling to identify them because I don't, I've never really thought about them that way. Mm. But uh, you're absolutely right. I'm just struggling because I was never like, oh yeah, that's that. Because I feel yeah. like he's just made kind of his own thing. But I mean, he yeah. does do, he does mind control or th- creatures that take over people's bodies in a couple of different ways. He's done robots, as we've discussed this episode, through the golems. So the idea mm. of artificial people and whether they should be considered alive or people or however you want to, whatever nomenclature you want to mm. use. So, yeah, I, I feel like he didn't feel the need to make it too science fiction-y and the more steampunky industrial elements that he brought in, he did because he wanted to talk about modern stuff that was hard to fit into the magical medieval Europe fantasy realm that he started off with hmm so yeah it's there and it could have swung more that way with time i think do you do you think though like to take the other thing that frank's talked about in this first part do you see a change in the genre of the books over time or do you think it's a change in other things like would you describe that as a genre change or is it something else going on that's changing over time again like this is going to feel like a cop-out answer i'd I don't really view it as genre fiction because it really feels like he's doing his own thing. Like it is, it is fantasy, mm. but it just feels like he's carved out such a niche for himself. It just feels like the natural progression of the world he's created and it can be categorized by the categories we give literature as it progresses. And I do think that it's fair to say that it probably goes, as you said, science fictiony fantasy to more fiction literary with hints of the others. Like it's just the ratio of them mm. moves around depending on what's happening with the story. Yeah. But to me, like part, like we have genres and stuff, so we know where to put them in the bookshop and also what we might want to read. That's kind of like something else we enjoyed. Like the labels serve a purpose and they're useful and I like them. But also sometimes after a certain point, they're unhelpful. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. And I mean, like one of the things, uh, I don't know if I talked about this much on the podcast, but I, I've started teaching writing at a tertiary level, which has been a, a great challenge for me, but also a reinforcement of the thinking I've had to do over the years of learning about writing. And because I'm specifically teaching comedy writing, we talk about comedy genres, and that's a whole different set of things when you're writing narrative comedy, you talk about genre in terms of, well, is it a farce or is it a sitcom or is it a, you know, it's about the style of comedy and the way you set that up. And the other kind of genre, like, is it set on a spaceship or are there elves? 
or, you know, is it in an office on the real world? That kind of doesn't matter for those kind of genres. Those are things that you just use to make it interesting and, and give it flavor. And it's almost like those things, because I feel like there's so many different ways to talk about genre. Is it about the style of story that you're telling or is it about the trappings that come along with it and the conventions of the setting and the kinds of world that you're in? I just, I tie myself up in knots if I try to imagine like what my ideal bookshop layout is. And I start off with the idea with, I just want all the books together in alphabetical order by author last name, just all of the books to get nonfiction, fiction, graphic novels, everything in alphabetical order. Wow. Like, and I know that that would not work, but I kind of love the idea of it in like, as an, I would also, I love it and I hate it because I like, I love the idea that you could walk in there and be like, okay, well, I'm just going to choose a letter or a section and just see what, what cover appeals to me. I guess like pe- people get around that by like, like, Oh, well, my book is fiction. And if all bookstores are arranged like that, let's make yeah. all fiction pink or whatever. But, um, <laughs> so there's a lot of flaws with this idea, but like on a purely like hypothetical level where I know that it wouldn't work, I just love the idea of books not being sorted into literature or non-literature because i find that like re- i hate that there's some bookstores that have like a literature section and then a fiction section and then a science fiction section yeah because it implies that there's a subclass of books that are better because they're literature oh the whole idea of literary fiction just makes literary fiction can, can just bit. it's it's snooty as in, genres yes. aren't snooty Lit- the idea of like some books being literary and others not is snooty and it's a way of diminishing really good works like this one like there's always that famous story about like a lecturer who saw a terry pratchett book in a student's class and tried to like sort of talk down to them and they'd actually written their thesis on it and like put the lecturer in their place but i just yeah i hate i i I see why we need genre and i appreciate them because it helps me find books that i love Mm. because we can classify them but i hate that on the flip side of that the classification allows some people to look down their nose. Like when people say, oh, I hate romance or I hate science fiction or I hate fantasy, I'm like, they're such broad churches. They're just labels that we we put on things to help us keep track of what's out there. But people use it as a way of just shunting aside whole broad bodies of work. And I find that endlessly frustrating. I know that's not the question. I'm sorry. And I'm not saying that like I have a problem with fantasy and science fiction as labels. I think we need them. I think they're valuable. And I think this is a really important discussion in terms of how Pratchett's writing evolved, because it's a really good way to discuss that. Mm. But in the greater sense of people missing out on work that they might otherwise love, I think there is a harm to labels. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything that you just said. We shouldn't forget there is a spaceship in the Discworld. Oh, yes. We haven't done The Last Hero yet. And it's not the first one either. You know, there's another one that they drop off the edge of Kroll in the book we're about to read. So, you know, I think he went as far into those sort of sci-fi tropes as he ever wanted to, and he never saw it as a limitation. And part of the fun, and certainly I find this when I'm writing fiction that's fantastical in one way or another, is how to fit something that you want for a story or that a story needs into the world that you've created. And that's part of the joy of writing is creating that world and building it like, I, I love it when I want to put some sci-fi thing in a fantasy Dungeons and Dragons game that I'm running. And I'm like, well, how do I translate that into what this world is? And, you know, I've had huge fun creating a fantasy character that was basically Doctor Who, but deconstructing the idea of who, who that character is and reconstructing them according to the rules and established lore of another world. 
And I think, you know, Pratchett would have had endless fun doing that for Discworld. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the bonus question, though, that Frank asked. If there was a sci-fi Discworld future, could that actually be where the gnomes of the Bromeliad are from and where they return to? I would absolutely love that to be the case. Like, I think that would, as in I love things being tidy, I also think that would just be very good storytelling. <laughs> you reckon? I, as in, I'm not saying I think it's necessarily the case. I just think uh, it'd be cool. Yeah. It would be very neat. It would tie everything up in a bow. I, I am going to say, I think it could be, but I don't think it is. And I actually, as much as I do think it would be neat and fun, I would not want it to be. I, if if there was another story about the gnomes returning home, I would want them to have this whole world, which was their own world, which was its own thing that explores new themes about what it means to come home after being away for so long and to rediscover a culture that you have been separated from. Like, I think there's so many interesting things to say about that. Also, the gnomes, they, li- they exist in our universe, uh, or at least one very similar to ours. Whereas various things in the books, and I'm just getting on my nerd horse now, but various things in the books really kind of suggest to How us dare you that- you call a horse a nerd, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I think they look good in glasses. Um, <laughs> but the, um, it's, it's fairly clearly laid out that our world, the round world, the real universe that we live in is an alternate universe to the one that the Discworld exists in. It's not just that Atuan is somewhere on the other side of Mudder's Spiral or the Milky Way or whatever we call it, that's another dimension, you know. Spaceships right. can pass through dimensions. Well, that's true. And maybe the gnomes have mastered interdimensional travel. So you got me there. <laughs> you got me there. But I would like it not to be. I would love, and I, not that I've imagined it in any detail, but I would love to know what Terry Pratchett thought the gnomes planet was like and their home culture, particularly after so many thousands of years. Because I think the gnomes on Earth have been heavily shaped by the influence of human culture over the generations that they've spent there forgetting their past and going back to their own people. I think they're going to be strangers in a strange land, you know, and that story could have been fascinating. I don't think it needs to be told. I don't think it needed to be a book, but if it was, I would love to read it. I think you might enjoy Homeward Bounders by Diana Wynne-Jones. It is very good. I think about it quite regularly, and I think it's one of her more underrated less popular books. I mean, all of her books are underrated and not sufficiently popular, but that one is one that I particularly enjoyed rereading a lot as a child. So yeah, I haven't read it in the last few years. Maybe I will, but I think you could get some joy from it. I often, this is off topic, but when we first started the podcast, we had all these ideas for different kinds of episodes that we would do. One of the ones that I always hoped we would have time to do at some point were episodes about other authors. Mm. And I mean, maybe we'll find room for that as we get towards the end and we don't have many books left. And if we want to, you know, stretch the podcast out a bit longer before we finish it, maybe that's what we do. Or maybe we even think about, do we want to do a spinoff where we read all of the books of Diana Wynne-Jones? I would, I'm in for that because I love Diana Wynne-Jones so much. I actually have most of her books already. Um, and I feel yeah. I'm ready to love them. Like I've, I've only read and I haven't even finished it because I, I keep meaning to read it and then I've got to read a Pratchett book every month. But I, um, I, I've i only started reading Howl's Moving Castle and I really want to read so many of her other books because you just the way you describe them, I think I'm going to love them. I think Homeward, like, Howl's Moving Castle is my favourite one. But, um, mm. yeah, Homeward Bounders, I think there's a lot for you in that. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I remember you talking about it and I'm real keen. 
So, yeah. you know, look, uh, no promises, listeners. We have a lot of work on our hands just doing all of Pratchett's books, particularly because we're, we're going to try and do all of them. And people keep telling us about things that he's written that we didn't know existed. <laughs> like he wrote the introduction to a falconry book, apparently. <laughs> of course. But I would love, I would love to at least for this version of the podcast do an episode where we talk about Diane Edwin Jones and why we think Pratchett fans might enjoy her work. And, and that may be that we read a few of her books and discuss them. But I, anyway, I, yeah, I definitely would love to read The Homeward Bounders. I, I researched it a bit for the last episode you mentioned it in and it really did sound like it was a hundred percent my bag. Um, <laughs> don't read too deeply though. There's some, there's some good, turns okay that it takes i will avoid reading any synopses all right well that kind of brings us to the end of our very first eek club can we just say another big thank you to all of our eek tier subscribers so carl catherine soren jess and david and frank thank you all so much i'd like to extend that thank you of course to all of our subscribers all of whom monetarily support the podcast and make it possible for us to make Pratt Chat every month. It's a lot of work and it's work we do for love, but it makes it so much easier to do it around our freelancer arts lifestyles <laughs> when we know that it pays for itself and a little bit of the time that we put into it. So thank you all so, so much. If you would like to join them and be a subscriber and get access to our subscriber-only bonus podcasts, the Ook Club, you can do that at our website. Just go to pratchettpodcast.com slash support and you can find various ways to support us. If you don't want to support us monetarily, but you do love the podcast, the best thing you can do is just tell other people about it. Maybe write a review or rate it on whatever thing you use to listen to it. Just spread the word. It really does help. And, you know, I, I don't say this often enough. Don't just do it for us. Do it for any podcast that you love and any creatives whose work you enjoy because particularly when it comes to stuff like podcasting and music these days and a lot of content that goes out that you can get for free, making a living out of doing this sort of thing is super hard. And most of us doing it have to have other jobs. And that means that, you know, we're doing all the hours of reading and preparing and recording and editing and publishing and writing and all of that stuff happens around the jobs that actually make us money. And it's tough and it's tough for everybody. So if you enjoy us, if you enjoy any of the other fantastic Pratchett podcasts that are out there, um, shout out again to uh, The Truth Shall Make You Fret, but also to Radio More Pork and Desert Island Discworld and Who Watches the Watch and the new Australian one, uh, Unseen Academicals, which is two Australian academics reading the books and talking about them. That's only begun in the last few months. And, and everyone else who I, I won't try and list everyone, but whether it's them or another podcast that you listen to, think about if you can supporting them monetarily. And if you can't do that, just help spread the word. You know, it, every little bit helps. Uh, before we go, we'd also just like to give a big thank you to David Ashton, who made the wonderful, glorious 25th of May version of the Pratchett theme song just for this special episode. Thank you so much, David. It's great. If you want to shout at us and tell us how we got things wrong on any of these topics, please do. You can do it on social media using the hashtag EekClub2021. That's Eek with three E's. And until next time, wear your lilac towel with pride. Thank you for listening to Eek Club. I'm doing my best Ben impression, and I do not know what he says after this, but I do know that we very much appreciate you being here, and thank you for listening. We'll be back in another year with another Eek Club. Please keep the questions coming. Thank you very much. 
Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.